everyone else that I tried to share this idea for a hemp pain relieving tampon would just react in a very similar way. I don't want to hear about tampons. Why are you so strange? Stop talking about tampons. If this was a good idea, Procter & Gamble would have invented it already. It's never going to work. You're never going to be able to validate it. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting. Sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Valentina Milanova, founder and CEO of Day the company on a mission to close the gender pain gap, starting with CBD tampons. In this case, using CBD in a product is not just millennial hype. They've really done their research. They found out that tampons are currently less regulated than plasters. They're here to change that. Day self-regulates their product as a medical device, manufacturing them to the highest industry standards and running clinical trials to prove the efficacy of their CBD tampons. They also have another focus, Currently, 97% of tampons on the market are made with rayon, a non-biodegradable plastic. So Day have also said about removing all plastic from their products. If you've read Shoe Dog, the autobiography of the founder of Nike, Valentina's story reads a little, I think, like that of Bill Bowerman, a serial experimenter. We talked about how she made the first prototype with knitting needles and a freezer, how she raised $5.5 million from investors to build her business, despite having no formal medical experience, and why she wouldn't have been able to go full-time immediately. We also talk about what makes a good investment pitch, why being a solo founder can be difficult, and why you should behave like an artist whatever work you do. The audio on this episode is worse quality than usual, as we recorded remotely using a computer microphone. But I hope you stick with it, as it's such a fantastic story. How did it all start? And I think sometimes there are two answers to that. There's when did you first have the idea? And then there's also that kind of retrospective, this is why it meant something to me. Well, with me, they're quite connected. So I had my first period when I was quite young and I didn't have anyone to explain what was happening to my body. I also felt very uncomfortable talking to anyone about my menstruation. So I turned instead to research papers and anatomy books I developed this rigor of just really frequently reading research papers when I had questions about polycystic ovarian syndrome or painful periods or endometriosis or just any female health condition. The idea for the first product of day, the pain relieving tampon, came from me reading research papers uh, about industrial hemp. So when you're nine years old, you get your period earlier than the rest of your class. What yeah. was the first thing you did? Because like, were, there, were there research papers online at that time? Was it just a Google search? 
for about a year, I didn't know what was happening. I just thought it was some kind of a some kind of a disease. And also in, I don't know whether you remember your first year of your period, but it's not really blood. Uh, it's not red. It's like, uh, it's grayish and brownish in color. So you don't associate it with what you may understand to be menstruation. And it wasn't until one morning I was watching one of the morning shows and they were showing how to do a self-breast exam for breast cancer. And a year into my period, I had just started developing my breasts. So I don't know if you remember this, but you know, when you first start growing breasts, they feel exactly like lumps. And I convinced myself that on top of this crazy, weird disease that I had, which meant I got this weird discharge for a week every month, I also had breast cancer. That's what convinced me to build up the courage to go and tell my father that I, you know, had breast cancer for sure. And I had also been, you know, having this weird discharge. So he didn't realize what was happening to me either. And he took me to the emergency room where we explained what my symptoms were. And a nurse in the emergency room had a very big laugh. And she was like, oh, God, but you're just on your period. You're just menstruating. I was like, but what does menstruating mean? Um, And then, you know, my father and I walked out. I was feeling very ashamed. We went to a supermarket. He bought me a pair of pads. I didn't really know how to wear pads. So for the first few months of wearing pads, I put them on the wrong way. It also meant that um, I used to stain my trousers all the time. And it's cool. We had these like white plastic chairs. So I lived in constant fear that I was going to, you know, just stand up one day in class and have everyone find out that I was on my period. And my school was really good because the coolest kids in my school were the kids that read the most amount of books. So we were spending a lot of time in the library after school. I, you know, had a lot of questions about what was happening to my body and how to manage it. So I was reading a lot of anatomy books and and from that just started reading more and more papers. I developed this massive fascination with the female physiology and, and how it worked. Apart from research papers on female health, I also read all of these like accounts of people's birthing stories and I watched birthing videos on YouTube and um, started following like um, forums where doulas would share their experiences of helping women give birth and I just thought that was like so fascinating or like women that had ovarian cancer and and how they dealt with the because ovarian cancer is often associated with excess bleeding and and how you deal with that excess bleeding Um, I just thought it was like such a fascinating system that we have in us that we understand so poorly um and at at the time that i was developing this interest my parents were going through a very bad divorce so i almost stopped talking to my mother altogether so i didn't have a peer like someone close to me that i could go and ask these questions to so i developed this like very systematic approach to understanding womanhood Okay, so you've always had this interest in in reading and specifically in kind of this almost like, I think it's quite common amongst founders, this sort of obsession starts to develop with just trying to understand something, I think. Yeah, it's, it's something I've heard a lot. But you're, you're kind of a natural reader, but how did that lead to going into that level of depth? When you were reading about kind of industrial hemp, was that was that more intentional? Were you thinking, actually, maybe there's, maybe there's a, a business in this? Yeah, well, how I started reading about industrial hemp was that um, I was taking an evening MBA class. And in order to graduate, I had to come up with a business idea that was going to be socially impactful. That was a task. And I started reading about northern Bulgaria. I'm from Bulgaria. And northern Bulgaria is one of the poorest areas of Europe. And it's also the area that has the highest rates of uh, 
sexual trafficking because there's so much unemployment. There's like 52% unemployment that has been going on for a long time. So I thought I, I had this knowledge in the back of my head and I thought, okay, I can come up with a business idea that would somehow reinvigorate the economy of Northern Bulgaria. And that would solve my problem, which is that I had to come up with a business case that would also be socially impactful. So then I started looking into the history of Northern Bulgaria and what the region had historically been good at producing. And it turns out it's industrial hemp. Northern Bulgaria used to be the biggest exporter of industrial hemp. So then I started looking into industrial hemp and what could be higher value added uses of industrial hemp because it's it's used predominantly right now for animal feed and animal bedding, uh, construction materials, but those are low value added industries. Um, so I thought that if I could come up with a different application of industrial hemp that you know would be produced and extracted, etc., in that region, that would um, solve the task that I had for my evening MBA. Um, and then I went to the National Library and I just found every research paper that I could get about industrial hemp and just started reading and marking different sentences. And two of the properties of industrial hemp stuck with me. The first one is that it's the most absorbent natural fiber that exists because it has a porous structure. So if you imagine other natural fibers like cotton, um, they're straight and hollow. Um, so fluid comes in and then it comes out. Whereas industrial hemp has a, the structure of a sponge. It has many different pores, um, which means that it captures fluid much faster and it retains it. And then the second property that really stuck with me was that it had analgesic properties when applied topically. The um, extract from the industrial hemp flower, when applied topically, could result in pain relieving effects. So then I thought to myself, okay, we know that there is this one plant-based ingredient which can both produce more absorbent fibers and a pain relieving extract. Why don't we combine the two of them into one product, which is a higher value added product? And it would be a more absorbent tampon, so a tampon that wouldn't leak and it would at the same time be pain relieving. And from having my background in reading lots of research papers, I knew that the vaginal canal is a really effective way for the administering of all kinds of drugs. In Australia, for example, the standard procedure when you've just given birth Instead of receiving pain relievers um, intravenously or orally, you're actually given uh, given them through a mucous membrane. So the effect is much, much quicker and it's localized. So I knew that the vaginal canal could be used for the administration of drugs. And I just had the idea to have a more absorbent pain relieving tampon. It was definitely the strangest presentation uh, for my MBA class. I actually had one of my teachers for that MBA he thought that during the program, I was showing lots of potential and, you know, was a good student. And then at the end, when I gave my presentation, he came and he was like, are you okay? Is everything fine? Like you were showing so much potential during the course. And now you're coming up with this pain relieving tampon idea. Like, how am I supposed to grade that? And it was just a lot of awkward silence at the end of my presentation. Um, and then everyone else that I tried to share this idea for a, a hemp pain relieving tampon, uh, would just react in a very similar way, which was, I don't want to hear about tampons. Why are you so strange? Stop talking about tampons. If this was a good idea, Procter & Gamble would have invented it already. It's never going to work. How are you going to produce it? You're never going to be able to validate it, et cetera, et cetera. So I barked the idea on a shelf in my brain, but it just kept pestering me. It was kind of always at the back of my head that this could be something, that it could be something meaningful. Um, and I've always suffered with 
horrible period pain myself. So I had a monthly reminder (laughs) that something has to be done about period pain. And then I decided that I was just going to start working on this project just really quietly, not telling anyone, not advertising it at all. Um, And I used my salary from my daytime job and credit cards to finance the initial clinical trials, the initial product development, the initial experimentation, machine development, IP, etc. And I actually only told my mother that I was working on this after I raised the first round for the company. I was so afraid to tell anyone that I was working on this because I thought everyone was you know, just going to be really harsh with what the company could be or what the product could be. And also, you know, before we had the beautiful brand that we have right now, people couldn't really visualize what the pain relieving tampon could be. So everyone used to say, your weed tampons mm. or like <laughs> your, your drug tampons. Beyond the reading of um, papers and, and kind of becoming a like self-taught master in, in periods and menstruation, did you have any kind of background in healthcare or entrepreneurship? I guess you had done a part-time MBA, which may have helped with some of that confidence, but how much credibility did you have already to be in that space? Yeah, zero. Absolutely zero. No credibility whatsoever. I had never managed people or put together a team or conducted a clinical trial or gotten a product approved by regulators. I didn't know any venture capitalists. I also didn't grow up here. I have a very heavy accent. You know, I only started studying English when I was 18. So, you know, it takes me a lot more time than the average person to put a sentence together when I'm speaking because I need to like translate the word in my head. Um, So yeah, I had like zero credibility. There's so many people that want to do things in spaces that they don't know anything about. Um, and I think you've managed to do something amazing, which is kind of ignore that and say, I care enough about this that I will learn what I need to learn um, and I'll do it. And I think that's what a lot of kind of successful entrepreneurs and founders think like. But I'm curious how more people can kind of learn those skills or more people who want to do something but but are doubting their kind of legitimacy in doing it. Do you think there's anything that, that you've learned or that you've kind of recognized in yourself that, that's helped with that? Well, I was always thinking, okay, whenever I needed comfort, I would think to myself, what's the worst that can happen? Okay, I'm going to have to take out another credit card. What's the worst that can happen? I'll just have to repay the debt back with working my day job for a little bit longer. At least I will have tried. Or I'm going to reach out to this clinical trial facility and ask them if we could pay in monthly installments rather than in a one-off fee. What's the worst that can happen? Or I'm going to reach out to Index Ventures via LinkedIn. What's the worst that can happen? I always, I found a lot of comfort and reassurance in that thought because I think often we blow our fears out of proportion and they seem to us much bigger than they are in reality. So asking myself continuously this question of like, what's the worst that can happen made me just continue pushing through. And I also... I grew up with this sense of it gets me into a lot of trouble today because I can't pick my battles very wisely. But I grew up with this really strong sense of I need to do something when I see an injustice. So if I see something that I feel is very unfair, I become very aggravated very easily. And I always found it was exceptionally unfair the state of female health was exceptionally unfair. You know, the the experience of going to the gynecologist for an STI check is so like unpleasant and embarrassing and you're made to feel little and unimportant or the experience of finding the best contraception for you 
it's it's you know just so impersonal and you know you're 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 just a patient number who cares about your side effects i find that just anger provoking and i thought okay well i have to do something about this i didn't really question my legitimacy of okay why should i rather than someone else do it i i was always thinking okay well i will start doing this and then someone else can pick it up if they want to and you know other people can join on the way and we didn't have a medical advisory board at the start now we have a really credible medical advisory board which was built really kind of person by person slowly reaching out to people and then them telling their researcher friends about us I love that. I mean, I think people are driven by different things. I think some people are just driven. Anger is the wrong word, but I think like almost a desire to, whether it sets something right or whether it's proved someone wrong. And I think sometimes it's almost so irrational is the wrong word, but it's so passionate, I think, that it can override some of those rational things, which is like, oh, I'm not a doctor. So that's, you know, if you're really rational and logical about something, you can talk yourself out of most things, I think. So in terms of dates, when you were doing the um, part-time MBA, were you working alongside that? Yeah. How long did you park it for before you started thinking about it again more seriously? So I had the idea in May 2017, and I started doing the, the first actual prototypes in November 2017. So I made the first. Machine is a big word for what it was. It was more of like a desktop size prototype but it could help me create the first product which I could use on myself and I could convince my friends to use and give me feedback with I had a month between two jobs and I went back to Bulgaria and I had a friend who studied design engineering at university and he helped me think about how to make the first products and how to do the first infusion of the extract onto the tampon after I used them on myself and I had my friends use them I started sending them out to various tampon manufacturers to see whether they would help me create this new tampon which was using new fibers and had a new design. So you get a terrible reaction the first time you tell people, so much so that it stops you working on it entirely. Yeah. Who did you tell when you when you started doing it again? Did you do it totally by yourself the second time? I didn't really tell anyone. I was working in London and a friend of mine who worked at the FT was writing an article about female entrepreneurs and she said do you want to have your project featured and I was like hmm this could be really helpful if I ever want to fundraise or anything so I said yes and I didn't know that they were going to feature it so big so I ended up having this article with my picture taking like half a page in the center of the FT while I have this like regular day job at which almost no one knows what I'm doing and I had a big talking down from my manager I remember that the article came out and I cried the whole day because my my manager at my previous job was like, this is so dishonest. How could you do this? How could you not tell us? I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know it was going to be so prominently featured. And I only, I only got the courage to tell my mom um, that I had, you know, quit my job and gotten myself into lots of credit card debt when I first fundraised. My, my mother was one of those mothers that were always saying, don't use tampons. Don't you dare use tampons. Wow. <laughs> You're like, yeah, uh, <laughs> this is what I'm doing with my life now. Yeah. Did you, if you were looking back at it now, would you, would you do it differently? Or do you think actually working in silo was useful? I was working in silo in the sense that I wasn't telling like my friends or people that I worked with, etc. But every weekend I would go to Planet Organic and I would 
or Tesco's or Sainsbury's and just like stalk people by the tampon aisle and ask them lots of questions about their current experience with period care and what they wanted done differently. So I was talking to, you know, design engineers and people who did clinical validation and uh, people who had built successful brands. And I was thinking about how this could, you know, go the next step from being an idea to a product. Um, but I wasn't, you know, bragging to my friends. So it was helpful because there was no expectations about what this idea could become. But at the same time, I made sure to still tell people that could be potential users of the product so that they could give me feedback Mm. really early on. How did you find those people? Literally in the supermarket next to the tampon aisle. I love that. It's of all products as well. It's something that, you know, people don't tend to speak that much about even in private thought that that was going to be the case and then when I started interviewing people in you know in supermarkets it's like people had so much to vent about tampons it's like they were waiting for someone to ask them a question about period care I, I that's one of the things that really surprised me because I was preparing myself for how awkward and embarrassing it was going to be and how many people were just going to you know reject me and like walk away there was I, I don't remember having a single case of someone telling me no I don't want to talk to you right now I'm busy leave me alone everyone was like yes I want this from tampons. I hate the plastic. Why do they shed so much? Why do they cost so much? Why are tampons taxed? People had a lot to say. At that point then, was that was that one of the kind of inflection points where you thought, okay, people do care about this. You know, I'm tapping into a, a something that people do really care about. The biggest inflection point for me was first when my friends started seeing effectiveness and then when the clinical trial data started coming back. So when I started reading the patient journals of you know, people who didn't know me, who didn't have a reason to, you know, be nice. There was this one particular woman who wrote in her patient diary that the pain relieving effect was like leaving a really noisy club and walking out into a really quiet room. It was like so sudden. When I was having difficult times with the company, I always just got went back to reading those patient journals. And, and that's something that I do now as well when I'm thinking... God, how are we, you know, going to overcome this challenge? I just go on Instagram and I read our like direct messages from people saying, I've changed my life. I used to not be able to go to work or leave my house. It sounds like you're driven both by that big ambitious market opportunity and that everyday customer pain point. Do you think you're driven more by one or the other? Or have you always been kind of looking for something which does both have a positive social impact and provide an opportunity to build a big business? So what I find exciting about the opportunity to build a big business is that it's so hard to find funding for female health innovation. There is no funding for female health innovation. That Creating a profitable business in female health creates this engine for continuous reinvestment into further female health innovation research and new products. So what excites me about building a profitable business is that it creates this virtuous cycle of the opportunity to continuously come up with better products for women rather than, you know, this is a big business, we can make a lot of money. The whole core concept of day is that we want to build a profitable tampon business and then reinvest the profits into further research, into further products. Mm-hmm. Balancing it with a full-time job. couple of questions on that. I guess the first one is, how did you find the energy and the time to do it? Because I think that's something that comes up a lot. People say, oh, I'd love to do this thing, but I just don't have the time. Yeah. 
it was really hard on my body. I gained a lot of weight. Um, I, I, I stopped sleeping like, you know, I, I used to before. I mean, I found the extra time by waking up really early and going into the office of where I had my day job to put in my morning shift of working on the company. And then I would, you know, have my nine to seven regular job. And then from seven onwards, I would put in my second shift of working in the company. And then on the weekends, you know, I would just have my coffee machine right next to my, it was on my bed stand so that, you know, before going to bed, I would put the capsule in and just press the button first thing in the morning um, so that I could, you know, give myself a really strong dose of caffeine and because at, at the start, I had to do everything. I had to do all of our initial, you know, regulatory documentation, all of our clinical trial protocols, all of our, you know, like our IP drawings, things like that. So I had to teach myself a lot of skills before I could apply them to actually being helpful for the product. So it was, I wish I had like a shortcut. I didn't make a lot of healthy decisions. I over-caffeinated and underslept. Do you think in hindsight you would have just gone full-time or do you think it was a good decision to start on the side i definitely could not have gone full-time because i needed my job to get credit cards and i needed my job for my salary and it was also too early before we had any clinical data or ip or defensibility so i think i went into the business full-time kind of as soon as i could there's just so many things that i think most people can't even imagine doing like doing clinical trials building a brand completely from scratch getting those early users. I mean, talk me through actually how how you got it off the ground, especially when it was on the side. What was V1 of day before the glossy 70s inspired packaging, which we all kind of know today? When you talk, when you say V1, do you mean the first products that we actually sent out? Because the, fir- the first products that we sent out were, you know, glossy and beautiful because we really cared about how everything looked and we still do and everything has to be done to the highest standards. But the first prototype was a... So there's a technique that you can use in order to put fiber together, which uses a big needle and you kind of punch the fiber so that it becomes hard and into a shape. So I did this to create the first tampons. It's called needle punching. Um, And then I also printed these 3D printed molds of what, you know, of, of a tampon shape. I mean, I think most people are like, I have no idea how to do 3D printing or... I just Googled 3D printing and I found a company that does 3D printing and I went to their offices and I said, can you help me make a model of a tampon? Because I don't know how to make a 3D model myself. And I I brought them an OB tampon, uh, which is the tampons that you can buy in Bulgaria. And I said, like, this is what I want the mode to look like. Can you make this? They made it. They printed it for me. I took it home. The needle punching technology I read about in a research paper um, and I didn't have the appropriate needle. So I just bought like a knitting needle because I didn't, I couldn't afford the appropriate needle. And the fiber I bought from a supplier, which I also found in a research paper because I was reading about cottonized industrial hemp. And I found this university researcher who was making cottonized industrial hemp. Cottonized means softened. And I needle punched the first tampons and then I didn't really have a technology for coating that took a lot of research. So you're manually punching the cotton yourself in your house with a knitting needle? Yes, in the 3D printer box. <laughs> and then I, I had to find a way to keep the extract on the outside of the tampon. So I knew, I went through this phase of uh, being really careful 
about what I ate and what kind of cosmetics I put on my body. I was a raw vegan throughout university and I stopped using like traditional sunscreen because I thought that was so bad with all of these chemicals. And um, I was using cacao oil instead of that. Um, and I knew that cacao oil melt, melted the temperature of your body. So I thought, okay, if I mix the cannabinoids with cacao oil, they would be firm on the surface of the tampon at room temperature, but then would melt inside the vaginal canal because cacao melts at the temperature of the human body. So then I mixed the cannabinoids with the cacao and I used a needle to put them on the outer layer of the tampons. And then I put them in the freezer so that they would cold. And then I distributed them to my friends um, at the dinner party that I lured them to under the pretense that it was my going way back to London dinner party. Wow. And did they use them? Yeah, they used them, yes. I feel like you're kind of, have you read Shoe Dog? <laughs> You're like the Bill Bowman of, of tampons. Shoe Dog is a book that helped me survive my first ever trip to San Francisco. I went to San Francisco to fundraise and that was in August 2018. And I was all out of money on my credit cards and just everywhere. I had no, like, I had no money to buy bottled water. Like I maxed all of my cards out to get a flight and I got a wow air flight which had an 18 hour layover in Iceland so I was staying at the friend's flat in San Francisco and had no money for anything and was taking the cow train to Palo Alto illegally hiding in the bathroom because I couldn't afford the train fare and then I would walk from Palo Alto to all of these fancy VC offices and I would make sure that I was there about half an hour early so that the really nice assistant would say do you want anything to drink or eat and then we'd be like yes please surviving in san francisco on like fancy vc dried mango and coconut water and like granola bars and all of these and also my face was burnt because it's very hot in palo alto during the summer and i had to walk from palo alto to their offices so my nose had started flaking and i met with google ventures and the meeting with google ventures was one of my final meetings in san francisco and i think they sensed i was really tired and really poor so they got me an uber from uh, Palo Alto back to San Francisco. And I thought that was the nicest thing that anyone had done for me. Like I cried all the way home in that Uber, just like tears of joy. And uh, uh, I was, what kept me sane during that time was uh, constantly listening to Shoe Dog on audio um, and, you know, just constantly hearing the daily pain and insecurity that is building a startup from scratch. And did Google Ventures invest in the end? Maybe not, no. <laughs> At least they got you a car home. But your investment round is like a who's who of amazing investors. You've got Kindred, Index Ventures, Cosler Ventures. Just talk me through someone who has no experience in it, obviously now has almost got a PhD level of experience through self-learning. How did you sort of navigate those conversations with these VCs? I was very inexperienced and I, I didn't first pitch Index or, or COSA. I first pitched anyone that, you know, had any money to invest in startups. So I started pitching angels and I, I pitched all of the accelerators and just anyone that would listen about my idea. Over the, the summer of 2018, I pitched around like between 180 and 200 investors. I was just having constant VC meetings in, you know, like really early mornings, late evenings. And that just helped me develop a pitch that made sense to investors. At the start, 
my my pitches were all about the environmental impact of tampons and you know the gender paying gap and um, all of these things that were not very interesting to investors. And then I perfected my pitch to start with showing the you know financial potential of this company and the defensibility and how I thought about the brand and the route to market. So I just practiced a lot. And then I heard Jack Dorsey speak at a conference and he said, always start your pitch process by going to the investors whom you definitely don't want in your round and then keep the investor that you really want in your round for last. And what do you think makes a good pitch? You have to be really mindful when you're talking to venture capital investors who have 12 to 14 meetings a day and they have to jump from AI to agriculture to direct-to-consumer businesses to e-commerce marketplaces, etc. So they, by the nature of their work, have really short attention spans and also really limited amount of time, which you need to use very wisely as an entrepreneur. So I wouldn't say that, you know, there's anything wrong with me having a strong passion for sustainability or, or female hot. It just wasn't what was the right thing to communicate in that first pitch meeting. So I think start with what's important to your listener, but then make sure that they share your values and all of the things that are important to you are also important to them. I know you started with the blog Vitals from a marketing perspective. Was that an intentional move to go live with that first? So on yourday.com, you first see our really helpful content on female health, and then you can click to go to the e-commerce website and buy tampons. So for us, it was always intentional that we're going to build a relationship with the consumer that's based on us providing value first and then them falling in love with the brand. And we also needed a way to build a community and engage a community uh, while we were putting the production together. So we had a year from the first fundraise to when we actually went live um, in which we built the brand and, and we built production and we got regulatory clearances and, and all of that. Um, and throughout that time, we just continued publishing this really uh, research-based but easy to understand, easy to digest content on female health. There's two things that make day really cool. One is the depth of science that sits underneath this glossy brand. And then the second thing is the fact that you've managed to turn quite a stagnant industry into something that becomes almost like a desirable consumer product. Yeah. Did you know from the beginning that brand would be important? Oh, yeah. It was always really important to me. I've always wanted to be an artist growing up, but I never, uh, I was not born in a family that was going to allow me to be an artist. So I w wanted to create a brand that was going to be genuinely differentiated and really artistic. And we tried working with so many different branding agencies and just kind of kept canceling the contracts after, you know, a month and uh, a few weeks of work because we kept seeing just an absolute lack of creativity. I think when you, when you create a brand with an agency, it's so obvious, it's so easy to see because it's out of the box, you know, traditional direct-to-consumer, these color schemes, these fonts. And with they, I just wanted to create something that really respects the user's intelligence. The, the original name of the company is actually Anstey, which company was originally named after this sentiment that Anne Frank expressed in, in her journal, um, which was, I can't wait for this momentous day when I'm finally going to become a woman and try on mama's tampons. And I remember reading that when I was younger in school and just thinking, oh my God, you can think like that about your period. And that's why we have the initiation boxes that we have and this entire you know, experience of you receive your box and it's something to look forward, almost like a gift box that you receive every month. The central thesis of the brand is the scientist meets the dreamer. So we have this really mm. 
strong scientific element from all of our clinical validation, from the rigor with which we approach product design. And then on the other hand, we have this aspirational periods or something to look forward to. There's a bright day ahead in female health. So you end up eschewing the agencies um, and then do you go with freelancers or do you go in-house? So what happened is I was on Instagram and I found uh, a designer in New York. She's not a designer. She's more of an artist. I just remember looking at her Instagram and I really loved the colors that she used. And I thought that's really cool. That's exactly what I want for day. You know, this like 70s vibe, 70s pharmaceutical packaging. And I sent her a direct message and I was like, hey, I have this company that makes pain relieving tampons. I love you know how you do colors and 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 branding i would love to work with you on you know just creating the visual lang- language for a day and she wrote back and said sure so we, we we jumped on a phone call that went really well and then i flew to new york and we've been working together ever since and, and she's a person to create every single element of our brand she creates the websites but also the packaging the leaflets the instagram posts she's just incredibly versatile incredibly talented I can't remember if I read it in an interview or I heard it in an interview. You said that one of your favorite books was about an artist. And I looked it up and I loved it because it's such an amazing essence. But I'd love you to sort of tell me a bit more about it. Yeah, The Art Spirit is an awesome book and everyone should read it. It's really underrated um, book. We give it to every new joiner a day. The core principle of The Art Spirit is that you can... Think of yourself as an artist and you can approach your work with the dedication and commitment and creativity um, that an artist would, you know, approach a a piece of art. Um, And you don't have to be involved in sculpture or drawing to create something really beautiful and meaningful for the world. I think it's easy a day because we we make things with our hands. Everyone's a builder here. And people take a lot of pride in their work. um, And I think that comes from you know, the kind of people that we hire, this is not a nine to five job. It's not a job that you take because you want to get someplace else. It's not an interim job. It's a job that you take because you really care about what the company is doing. What do you think the biggest reason for joining Day is? Because you've got this ambition under the surface, which is actually to change the face of women's health. But I guess you could imagine some people saying, oh, it's, it's just a tampon company. What would be your response to that? We are a tampon company now, but what we want to be is a female health company. And the idea is that we're creating a profitable tampon business in order to create this constant engine of funding for future female health innovation. So there's a big gap in female health research, but there's also a big gap in female health funding. So a profitable, successful tampon brand can create a virtuous cycle of innovation in female health. So that's one, you know, the, the impact that an employee of day can have on female health. And then the second reason why people join Day is our commitment to sustainability. We do a lot of material science innovation to ensure that we have the most sustainable products, the most sustainable packaging, and the most sustainable operations. So um, we use sugarcane materials in our applicator. We have a water-soluble and a home-compostable wrapper. We operate a CO2 neutral facility. Um, we, we, we have experimented with industrial hemp as a fiber to use in, in our tampons. So that's something that we're developing going forward. Industrial hemp is a lot more sustainable than other natural fibers because it doesn't require any irrigation from just rain. So those are, I think, the main two reasons why people join Day before they get to know the team and then they get to know the team and they really fall in love with the team as well. 
You're now, and you always have been, a sole founder. Yeah. How do you find being a sole founder? I never wanted to be a single founder. I always really wanted to have a co-founder, but it's a bit like uh, telling yourself, okay, I'm going to get married in the year of 2020. It doesn't work that way. It's very hard being a single founder. I understand now why a lot of investors don't invest in single founders. Um, you, You can't have anything else happening in your life apart from the company. You always have to be switched on and you're always the person who has to go and do stuff when there's an emergency. So it's not, it's not great being a single founder. I have a a coach who's been really helpful and I have my therapist um, and I have a, a group of founders that I trust. When you first went to market and still, but especially when you first went to market, it was a incredibly kind of unique, unheard of product and it continues to be. But of course, as with everything and every good ideas, you know, competitors pop up in the space. I guess I'm curious to know how you deal emotionally with that when it's a project which you're so kind of personally invested in. I think consumers can always tell when a product is a copycat versus your original thing. A lot less thoughtfulness goes into a copycat. So it actually emotionally doesn't bother me that much. I think it's because when I was growing up, I grew up with brothers who were older and just more physically strong than me. So I never, I never developed a sense of competition where I have to compete with others. I developed this like inter- internal sense of competition where I have to compete with myself and what I think are high standards that I want to adhere to. When you're copying something, you'll copy it across a couple and then you'll miss a few. And I think that's as you scale or as you start to grow, it becomes more apparent. But I do think that if you're if you are someone who puts a lot of kind of thought into into something, it can be more painful. Yeah, I mean, I guess we, we get a lot of people in the tampon space kind of copy our message and like just steal taglines from Instagram or the website. For a second, I just think, why? Like, you could have just come up with something cool and new and different. And then I'm just like, oh, bigger problems to solve. Yeah. And I guess it's imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So it's a loser's game trying to copy. What is it? It's like, why be the moon when you can be the sun? (laughs) I like that. If people are listening and they're thinking, oh, I want to get sort of have a look at day, where's the best place to go? Yourday.com. There we go. Thank you so much, Valentina. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed the podcast. Great to speak. Thanks so much for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. To hear more about Out of Hours, sign up to our newsletter at outofhours.org. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving a review. It really helps. 